coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. We've got some bad news for Wi-Fi lovers as the crack hack takes the world by storm. We've got the latest details and some places to watch to make sure you get all the latest patches. Then we've got some distressing news about third-party access to your personal information through some U.S. mobile carriers, the latest debate over Hammer, Mammer, what those means, and the future of hard drive storage technology, and a mini deep dive into elliptic curve cryptography. Plus, we've got your feedback, a rapid roundup, and so much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This is episode 341 for October 17th, 2017. This episode is brought to you by our three excellent sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. My name is Wes, and joining us this week is our BSD bestie. It's Dan. Welcome to the show, Dan. I'm here. Yeah, hello, everybody. Wonderful to have you. How are you doing today? I'm very good. Just me and Snorty sitting here in the cold. Oh, look at how cute that is. That's adorable. Where did you get that? Uh, these are all over the office. <laughs> That's awesome. Like big boxes of them. That's adorable. All right. Well, now I'm now I'm officially jealous. Anything new in your world, or should we just roll right into the uh, show? Today? Yes. Oh. I had three new USB thumb drives arrive yesterday. Um, I found out that my uh, screens won't work over a Thunderbolt two, so I'm getting a Thunderbolt three uh, docker docking station, and think that's about it i have still not dug into the halloween candy that's sitting just to my left here and that's about it you know what i admire that self-control because sometimes you just want a piece of candy yeah see listen to that there's a lot of candy here it's a lot of candy well we're getting there we are getting there but before we get there we really have to touch on some of the terrible things that have been happening around the internet this week and uh first up is oh I'm sure you've heard of it. It's that serious flaw in WPA2 that lets attackers intercept passwords and so much more. Given the given Halloween is two weeks away, could this be the trick? Oh, I think it very much could be the trick. Yeah, it could be. So uh, I have some interesting uh, sort of in, not inside information, but information that's sort of going amongst some inner circles. But here. Um, let's start by reading the first paragraph of this article on Ars Technica. Researchers have discovered a serious weakness in the WPA2 protocol, and I'll get back to that. I don't actually think it's in the protocol that allows attackers within range of vulnerable device or access point to intercept passwords, emails, and other data presumed to be encrypted, and in some cases cases to inject ransomware and or malicious content into a website a client is visiting. Now, this sounds horribly <coughs> insecure, but um, you, you, basically what WPA2 allows you to do is to encrypt the traffic between your wireless device and the device that it's talking to, normally an access point or, or router or, or some people refer to it as a their modem for their ISP. <laughs> right. Uh, these things are everywhere. Um, what? Even though you may be using HTTPS or VPN, it still is not great. You're not entirely out of the woods if you're restricting all your traffic to just that. Um, as I said, it can intercept stuff. Now, They say it's a protocol, but I'll get back to that because it's not necessarily the protocol. If if you follow the strict protocol and do not add anything in above the protocol, then yeah, you're 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 stuck. But it seems that that's what most people have done: is just follow follow the protocol. The attack works by forcing the device into reinstalling an all zero encryption key rather than the real key. Now that sounds bad, but it's actually part of the protocol. This ability, which also works on Linux, 
I don't know why they say that. Also works on Linux. It's a wireless protocol. Makes the attack particularly effective on these platforms. And the site went on the visiting HTTPS only wasn't automatically a remedy because many improperly configured HTTPS sites can be dropped into, into HTTP. But that's a separate issue. Um, so this, this vuln is called crack, and it works by targeting the four-way handshake. I didn't know it was a four-way handshake. That's executed when a client joins a WPA2 protected Wi-Fi network. So that WPA2 is supposed to allow you to set up the encryption so that you can't just sit there and listen to what's going back. Uh, you might be familiar with WEP, which is a, a previous, well, it's another protocol, not not so nicely. Yeah, not um, so nice. Not not so nicely protected. It's not as nicely regarded. Right. That's kind of a web kind of gave rise to that uh, the whole war yep. driving scene mm-hmm. and being able to easily crack your neighbor's password, get on their mm-hmm. Wi-Fi. Those were the days. Uh, among other things, the handshake helps to confirm that both the client and the access points have the correct credentials. Crack tricks the vulnerable client into reinstalling an already-in-use key. The reinstallation forces the client to reset packet numbers containing a cryptographic nonce, now there's a great word, and other parameters to their initial values. Crack forces the nonce, there it is again, reuse in such a way that it allows the encryption to be bypassed. Now, you, you should look up what a nonce is. It's very cool. Now, I'm going to finish reading this article and then, or reading the highlights from this article and then go on to the next one, which goes into much greater detail. The vulnerability is likely to pose the biggest threat to large corporate and government Wi-Fi networks, particularly if they accept connections from Linux and Android devices. I think they're being too narrow there. Yeah, I agree. Uh, This affects just about everything. So now I want to go over to the Forbes article, which not surprisingly or perhaps surprisingly actually has much better information. It did come out only yesterday, whereas the previous article came out on the day this was announced, which, oh, no, they both came out on the 16th. My apologies. To get... It's time to get patching again. Another widespread vulnerability affecting practically everyone that uses Wi-Fi was revealed on Monday. Blah, 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 blah. And then later, more more specifically, the crack attack sees a hacker trick a victim into reinstalling an already in-use key. Every key should be unique and not reusable. But a flaw in WA2 means that a hacker can tweak and replay the handshakes carried out between Wi-Fi routers and devices connecting to them. During those handshakes, encryption keys made up of algorithmically generated one-time-use random numbers are created. It turns out that in WPA2, it's possible for an attacker to manipulate the handshakes so that keys can be reused and messages silently intercepted. In the releases from yet, from that you've seen over the past couple of days, Wes, did you notice any products that were not vulnerable? That's a good question. Not off the top of my head, though. I have not been building a list. Um, I'm curious. I know that one one product that I don't want to mention Ooh. was not vulnerable because they implemented WPA2 with a couple of extra checks, one of which was not to reuse keys. I see. They just, they just won't reuse keys. They just won't keys. reuse keys. Okay. Well, yep. that's pretty... That, that seems sensible yeah. and uh, wow, paying off. So that, so that product did not release. Did not an have update. To, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. As for how spread, how widespread the issue was, it appears that almost any device that uses Wi-Fi is affected. Now, this is both a client and a server thing, is it? No, it's just no. It is the client as well. Yeah, because there's nothing. Yeah. The weakness is in the Wi-Fi standard itself and not in particular products or implementations. And my previous statement disagrees with the statement I just read. Um, it is in the Wi-Fi standard, but you don't have to, you can, some people, some products have implemented more. 
Therefore, any correct implementation of WPA2 is likely affected. Well, to prevent the attack, users must update affected products as soon as security updates become available. Basically, if your device supports Wi-Fi, it's most likely affected. Uh, there's some good news. Guess what the good news is? Ooh. It's not truly a remote attack. Excellent. Uh, in, in the most likely attack scenario, the hacker would need to have direct connect to the Wi-Fi access point. In other words, they're going to be sitting in the same cafe or outside your house. Did you upgrade anything yesterday with with respect to this? Uh, yeah, I've uh, I've upgraded some things. I've seen I've had some friends and coworkers who've had updates that they've had go around. It seems mm-hmm. like it's been done reasonably well. I saw Microsoft had some updates. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of a lot of big name vendors have updates prepared, which is good. I'll leave it to the listeners to figure out who isn't issuing updates. Yeah. It's a little puzzle. Those I like that. Was the ones that did it right? Yep, right. Or or went above and beyond. Went above. Not and necessarily beyond. did it right, but went above and beyond to avoid this situation. Somehow the person that was coding it realized, oh, this is a bad idea. Let's yeah. not let them do that. Yeah, just good software engineering practices, I suppose. This attack doesn't scale, says this chap. You have to be within physical proximity to to the device. It's it's a very targeted attack. Not like we're all going to be hit as attackers can only be in so many Wi-Fi zones at once. So it's not going to be it's not going to be someone sitting in their basement attacking everyone everywhere. They've got to get out and get mobile. Ha 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 ha. Um, yeah, I upgraded my uh, Ubiquity devices yesterday morning. Uh, that went rather well. It's always sort of a hard on me to remember how to do that because I don't upgrade them manually very often. Right. But they did upgrade rather quickly. Excellent. Um, but yeah, uh, some people are going to have trouble updating this. Uh, I'm sure that there's there's some devices sitting in homes that will never ever get updated because I've I've installed Ubiquity apps in two in the homes of two friends, and I know they're never going to hear about this. <laughs> right, but are I'm you gonna going do, to tell them? Yeah, I'm going to tell them. Three, three friends. Nice. Three, three locations. So, uh, if you so buy me I a beer, them. I can reveal a security flaw in your home network. Ooh. No, wait. No, that's not ethical. Well, no, 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 no. Hold on here. How about you buy me dinner and uh, or cook yeah. me dinner and yeah. Well, yeah. we'll I mean, see. you might include a couple options, extra things. All right, I'll, I'll upgrade your router and uh, yep. fix yep. one other yep. thing. Yep. But yep. I'm getting the steak. No, it'll probably just be spaghetti. Yeah, well, that sounds good. I don't sure. think it'll be a steak. <laughs> spaghetti, maybe. <laughs> That's fair. All right. So uh, now I had another note over here. Just let me switch. Oops, yeah. sorry, microphone there. Um, where to go? Stand there it by is. audience. Dan will destroy his studio, but we'll carry on. Scrolling, scrolling. So, lots of stuff got updated yesterday. Releases came out. Uh, lots of stuff did not. And so, this is where it pays to know what you have in use, what you're using around the office and at home, and monitor your suppliers for updates, whether that's through their blog posts or whatever. But just watch. Uh, Using a VPN and HTTPS will help. It reduces the uh, surface, the attack surface, but it's it's not perfect. We got to get WPA fixed, WPA two fixed. Yeah, exactly. It's done us uh, reasonably well over the years, uh, so this is it's a pretty big find. Uh, it seems like it's been communicated with somewhat less hyperbole at least so far that i've seen i mean like there's obviously been some bigger news stories and other things but it feels like it's been less over exaggerated the it's kind of hit right on at least a reasonable amount of like yes this is dangerous and then you should update but not like the world is ending all of wi-fi forever destroyed did did you notice that someone who we want name issued updates a couple of weeks ago that fixed this Ooh, i did not notice that okay so we won't name who it is Tie that in with what we covered last week or the week before on binary diffs. Right. 
there's some things to be found in there. So they released they they released ahead of time. Anyone doing a binary diff might be able to detect this issue. Hmm. So there. So there you go. All right. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm sure we'll have more more fallout on future shows from crack, but uh, hopefully that's enough to get people started. Go look for updates. Make sure that uh, the systems that you can update and have updates get their patches. Anything else you want to add there, Mr. Dan? Yeah, um, pay attention to this one because you are going to want to patch it, especially if you're on Wi-Fi. Yeah, and uh, you know, especially if you're in an area where you know you have reasonable threat vectors, or you just have a lot of people around you, or especially you know, home offices, offices, etc. So, get your patches. Okay, well, with that, you may now again be thinking, "Hey, it's it's really time that I run my own VPN, but I'm going to need a server for that." You will, but thankfully, I have the solution ready and prepared for you. It's DigitalOcean.com. Head on over to DigitalOcean.com. We've got an extra special promo code there, SnapOcean, all lowercase, one word. That'll get you started with a $10 credit. What can you get with this incredible credit? Oh, my friends, you can get some of the best cloud VPSs, they call them droplets, that money can buy. It's cloud computing designed for developers. What do they mean by that over DigitalOcean? What they mean is it's it's simple, you have full control, and it just works. They were some of the first to adopt SSDs. They've got all SSDs in there. They've got incredible transit, great peering, 40 gigabit E right to the KVM hypervisor. Yeah, this is real hypervisors. It's not a container. It's not some OpenBZ hybrid thing. It's KVM. So you can, you know, you know your OS will work. You get full virtualization. It's great. Plus, they've got a ton of other cloud features you've come to expect. Things like load balancers, monitoring, like all kinds of stuff. It's it's awesome. They're adding stuff all the time. Attachable block storage. They now have object storage. Go get in. Try object storage. Super reasonable rates. Really easy. And it goes above and beyond. Maybe you've used other object storage services. We're like, all right, well, I set up an API and I get my token and there's a whole bunch of JSON that it gets exchanged in both ways. Yeah, you can do that with DigitalOcean. They're compatible with a number of uh, standard API formats. But also, they've just got a simple, intuitive HTML5 dashboard. You can just drag stuff, put it in your spaces super simply. You can make it public or private. And if you make it private, they have an inbuilt functionality to make easy time-release shareable URLs that just get destroyed after a certain amount of time. So it makes it super simple if you just want to do a couple transfers or secure transfers maybe for your business or for clients or sharing details with friends or family. Super simple for that. Easy to use. It's great. Just one more feature that DigitalOcean has that sets them above and beyond the rest. And that dashboard, it's so simple. It's so easy. It's easily the best. It's all built on their API. So the API is super capable. It's way more friendly to use than a lot of their competitors. It all just shows shows that DigitalOcean has a different tack. They're not trying to, you know, be the giant enterprise player. They're, they're trying to cater to, to you know, people like you and I who just want to work on our projects or want to start a startup and don't need a thousand layers of... Uh, certifications and convoluted requirements and enterprise level agreements you just want to get some servers set up around the world in you know amsterdam or new york or toronto i mean they have data centers all over the place they're incredible go follow their social media you'll see what i mean and go check out the community use our promo code snap ocean that gets you a ten dollar credit uh, go check out the community section because you will find a whole bunch of world-class documentation. It's made from contributors, and then they have hired real top-notch editors to turn it into some of the best documentation on the internet. So whether you want to set up a WordPress server, an OpenVPN server, or anything in between, go try DigitalOcean.com and use our promo code SNAPOcean. Okay, so with that out of the way... Time to jump on to some more crazy news this week. This time, uh, it might just be in your pocket. It's icky. It's, it's very icky. icky. Yeah. It's icky. Uh, we've been concerned, and we've talked about it on this show, about mobile carrier carriers sort of doing stuff that's not very nice. Yeah. You know, they've got this concept of having context sensitive ads. So if you're walking across from shop X, you might see ads for shop X on your phone and stuff like that. Well, this is even more interesting. And we're going to start off with the, uh, blog post uh, by Philip N who talks about, um, this, crazy website that you could go to. So you go to this website in your zip code and and click on see underlying data. And 
<clears throat> basically it's your name and uh, location and some more information. Now these demo sites are now gone, but what's basically happening in here? So <clears throat> his background, what's going on here? In December of 2013, AT&T announced their mobile identity API. Sounds bad. Available only through an enterprise contract with AT&T. Naturally. So you and I can't get it. Well, maybe we should start but, an enterprise. But enterprises can. Yeah, well, of course. That's where the Verizon where the later is. announced something similar. So it looks like both hmm. Daniel or Daniel and Payphone are paying for access to these enterprise Delco APIs. The previous two test sites were uh, associated with those companies. These services are using your mobile phone's IP address to look up your phone number, your billing information, and possibly your phone's current location is provided by cell phone towers. No GPS or phone location services required. These services are doing this with the assistance of the telco providers. So why? Why might they be doing this? Well, let's read on. These services claim to help detect fraud by cross-referencing user-provided billing or phone number information with the cell phone provider's information. Okay. You can go away. My web search terms. <laughs> Trying to be so helpful over I there. don't know what I said there for her. Okay. Did you know that she won't, she won't answer if it's face down? It's now face down. Okay, there we so go. That's that a one. nice intuitive way to... Uh... Quiet it, it was only one of two phones, too. Hmm. While the two demos above require the lookup IP address to be the same as the requesting IP address, such safeguards may not be in place if you purchase contracts from these companies. For example, the payphone API appears to allow customers to look up cell phone information just by saying the user has consented. Their API also allows batch lookups. In 20... In 2003, news came to light that AT&T was providing the DEA and other law enforcement agencies with no court warrant provided, no, sorry, with no court warrant required access to real-time cell phone metadata. This is a pretty big deal at the time. I get a link to that information as well. Nice. But what these services, these demos that he's provided links, links to, which are now no longer active, these services show, show something even more alarming. U.S. telcos appear to be selling direct, non-anonymized, real-time access to consumer telephone data to third-party services, not just federal law enforcement officials who are then selling access to that data. So third parties can access this data through third parties. So given the trivial consent step required by these services and unlikely audit controls, it appears that these services could be used to track or de-anonymize nearly anyone with a cell phone in the United States with potentially no oversight. So the rest of what we're going to go through here is just his follow-up notes. Uh, the telco partners removed the demos once this article got some traction. Payphone also made their previously public and linked from their homepage API documentation private. They made that the API docs private. The article was updated to point to an archived form of their documentation. AT&T's consumer op choice opt-out at so-and-so URL didn't appear to do anything to stop this, even after waiting the stated 48 hours. All of the demos were still working for me in the morning of October 15th after I had, I had opted out on October 13th. Many users on Twitter and elsewhere also report that AT&T's opt-out process doesn't do anything here. Verizon's opt-out pages also may not do anything to prevent this either. And he gives links. Now, interestingly, there is a presentation by Brian Hicks of AT&T and... Ratesh Jain of Danal Inc. on YouTube. It's a joint presentation at CITA. The link is in here. After publication of this article, the video was made unavailable. Hmm. He also found what looks like a third-party API implementation 
for a, a Korean API in GitHub. The author wrote the code for South Korean telcos, so there may be differences with U.S. carriers. The query parameters in the HTTP requests are similar to what I remember seeing in the demo. It's unclear from my reading of the code whether or not this API requires operation inside of uh, a hosted iframe for uh, identity confirmation. But the diagram on page four of this documentation describes the Korean service. Describing the Korean service appears to show the client interacting with the customer's servers only. Now, apparently, credit should go to Paul Lanzi for showing uh, uh, Philip N. this demo. So Paul Lansley is a little is a cybersecurity startup. Is at a cybersecurity startup. This is pretty cool, and naughty. <laughs> I wonder who this falls under. I wonder what you know. If only we had a privacy czar. Yeah, wouldn't that be handy? That would be handy right now. Yeah, and and why are you selling my information? Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe uh, maybe I want to have an opportunity to consent to those sorts of things. Yep. I go back to the New Zealand privacy right. uh, rights uh, laws, which were created in you know the, the 80s or 90s, if I recall correctly. It might have been the eight, late 80s. Uh, information can only be used for the purposes for which it was gathered. There we go. That seems so reasonable. Uh, it you know, does, common doesn't sense. it? Unreasonably reasonable. Unreasonably reasonable. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's why we can't have nice things, Dan. Exactly, exactly. So uh, I don't see T-Mobile or anyone else we know listed here. No. Mm. I don't either. I, I mean, maybe viewers are now kind of uh, concerned for their, for their privacy and the implications of uh, those agreements they may have and are possibly looking for an alternative. If so, we have a suggestion, and that's one of our dear sponsors, our friends over at Ting. Head on over to techsnap.ting.com and you'll find a smarter way to do mobile. It's smarter in like a, a huge number of ways, but one of those ways is Ting doesn't really, it's not in the business of trying to sell your information or trying to become the next giant media conglomerate or try to force a bunch of apps down your throat. Those are just not Ting's goals. Ting's goal is to be an awesome mobile service provider that has a super intuitive, easy-to-use dashboard, that has pricing that makes sense for today's world and doesn't lock you in, and that keeps things friendly with real humans available to help you. When you when you go to techsnap.ting.com and sign up for an account, you'll get a $25 credit. Okay, $25. Now you're like, okay, that sounds pretty great. What can I get with that? Well, you can get just the best darn cell phone plan you've ever had if this makes sense for you have you ever wanted have you ever imagined you know this whole like contract thing where i sign up for a two-year contract and i have to estimate how much that i'm how much i'm going to use for that period and i only get so much here and maybe i get unlimited minutes but i don't really use minutes and i really just want to spend less money if that sounds like you then ting is perfect because ting is pay for what you use each line is six dollars each that's just six dollars that, that covers you know all the activation that sort of thing gets you started and that's per device so if you have three devices six dollars each if you don't use that phone at all that's all you'll pay for the month it's pretty great right now they've got a they've got a for the next like five days or so they've got a deal if you add an additional line you get a bonus two gigs of data so go check that out if you're watching this before october 22nd might just be for you after that $6, you just pay for what you use. So let's say you don't use any minutes and you don't use any text messages. Well, that's like that's like me. Maybe you use a couple, you know, maybe you just occasionally people send you text messages, you make a couple calls, you order some food out and you don't have Wi-Fi call in or similar, then, then maybe that's what happens. Uh, that's all right. And then you use a little bit of data. Maybe you just use like, like 500 megs because you're on Wi-Fi most of the time. Your monthly bill... $22 a month. So that $25 service credit, like that's going to get you started and probably pay for more than your first month of bill. And if you use more than those, that's fine too. You can go. It's really easy to estimate what you'll save by using Ting. They'll make it super simple over at their rates page. And you get all the things that you want, three-way calling, tethering, and like, okay, so tethering is great on Ting because it's pay for what you use. So you don't have to worry that you're going to go over some magical cap or have to pay an extra amount and get a separate weird magic tethering data bucket. No, that's nonsense. That's not, that doesn't make sense. That's not simple. Ting is mobile that makes sense. So why would they do that? They don't. Just use the data you want, pay for the data you use, end of story. 
if you need a new device too, you can use that service credit on one of their many fine phones. They've got all the you know largest and latest retailers over in the Ting shop. Uh, when when my internet loads correctly there. Uh, all right, well that's just not working. Let's go back to Ting's wonderful rates page. Regardless, you can go to the Ting shop. Find some devices. Use that service credit there. They've got like the Samsung S8. They've got all the latest iPhone devices. They all work Ting resells CDMA and GSM networks. So if one of those is better in your area, you can use that. That's how Ting keeps things so simple. Go check it out. Go pick up a a Ting SIM. Put it in a device. Put it in a laptop. Use it as an extra internet gateway. Use it in a backup cell phone in your car. There's just so many options. You won't regret trying out Ting. Head on over to techsnap.ting.com. Dot com. Okay, so here we're taking a break from some of the bad, terrible, no good uh, security and privacy things in the world to just talk about some technology. And you know what? That's kind of nice for once in a while over here on the TechSnap program. Yes, this is what we all like. New toys. New now, shiny. <clears throat> now, the, what we're talking about here is... This article reads like a press release, and we're people listening to it will sound like we're just piping on what Western Digital is saying, and that if, but if it was someone else saying the same thing, we would be talking about it just the same. So, we're we're not being specific here. It just so happens that it's Western Digital that's announcing this. So, recently, they've been there's been a lot of talk about. H-A-M-R, hammer, I guess is what you call it. But basically what you do is you uh, heat up the disk before you write to it, and it gives you more capacity. But there's some problems with that approach. But what Western Digital has started doing is instead of using a laser to heat it up, they're using a microwave. Not a microwave like sitting on your kitchen counter, but... Yesterday, Western Digital announced a breakthrough in microwave-assisted magnetic recording, MAMR, M-A-M-R, that completely took the storage industry by surprise. Say what? That The takeaway was that Western Digital would be using MAMR instead of HAMR for driving up hard drive capacities over the next decade. Before going into the specifics, it is beneficial to have some background on the motivation behind MAMR. Okay. Well, I found that their uh, specifics wasn't all that great. So then I leapt way over to the Extreme Tech link where they actually talk about why they're using this, why they've changed it. So they say, if if MAMR works out, it would most likely replace HAMR. Pardon me. With hammer heat-assisted magnetic recording, a laser is used to heat the media and make it easier to write. So the end result is similar to MAMR, which uses microwave to achieve the same thing. However, repeatedly heating the hard drive platter to several hundred degrees, that's a lot, would cause a reduction in longevity. The head design would also be completely different than current hard drives, which adds to the manufacturing complications. MAMR doesn't heat the recording medium at all, and the technology to make it work is invisible to the host machine. Not only would HAMR require completely new manufacturing techniques, but servers would also need, need driver software to manage wear leveling caused by the rapid and repeated heating. Western Digital claims that MAMR drives should easily match the lifespan of current drives. So there's this diagram here that they talk about where uh, the complexity of MAMR leverages concurrent technology. The reliability is similar to current technology, which they're referring to as PMR. Uh, It's plug and play. Uh, they should be under production in 2019. Oh, that's which is, pretty soon here. Which is theoretically only less than 13, 13 15 months apart away. And, and the cost approaches PMR. Wow, okay. okay. Whereas, whereas the, the heat one, new materials and supply chain changes, heat dramatically degrades reliability. Now, Remember that we're we're getting this from people who are pumping up the MAMR. Um, the manufacturability is unknown, cost and reliability challenges, and they say it's significantly higher than PMR. So 
if we believe all the hype that Western Digital is putting out there, and they may be telling the absolute truth, but this is a PR release, uh, this sounds interesting because they're talking about the possible little uh, excuse me the possibility of forty terabyte enterprise hard drives, forty terabyte. Right now, what's our biggest? It's like twelve, spinning maybe disc? sixteen. 12? I, I'm not. I'm not sure on the latest one, but it's you know it's certainly not. It's certainly not forty. Enterprise hard drives, forty terabytes. So the first such hard drives should hit around 2019, 2020. Now, all right, it looks like sixteens are coming on the marketplace anywhere or something yeah. like that. But sorry, go on. So. What they've got is the writer has this innovative spin torque oscillator, which delivers energy assist and path for aerial density. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. <laughs> you're doing, a, you're doing four, a good job, though. They can do four terabytes a square inch. Wow. That's, that's astounding. That's impressive, yeah. Four terabytes a square inch. The device used to generate a microwave field that increases its reliability, its its ability to reliably record data at ultra high density enables Western Digital to create hard drives that can hold over 40 terabytes worth of data. Such hard drives are expected to be available to consumers by 2025. That's a long way away. That's eight years. That is a long way away. Although WD will begin providing them to data centers as soon as 2019. Why do we have to wait six years? Probably for the cost to drop, I would imagine. Yeah, I suppose that's true. But To make it reasonable that these things will be yeah, proofed, battle-tested, ready for consumer use. Now, uh, I was reading another article. Uh, it might have been the first one that we linked to, where they were saying that SSDs and HDDs. SSDs are probably going to take over for, for consumers, but HDDs won't because of the cost per gigabyte, which is just dramatically dropping. Like yeah, right. the, the amount of storage that $1 gets you now is just flying. Definitely nice uh, for um, you know people who want to protect their backups. To put it in perspective, one of these hard drives would replace about eight of mine over here. <laughs> I just but, um, I just helped my parents recycle an, an old machine that had a twenty gigabyte hard drive on it. Um, so that was that was pretty good. Couple couple uh, order of magnitudes involved here. I have a couple of old SCSI drives sitting around just for test purposes, which I think are less than a gig. Wow. I'm sure they're less than a gig. It, it's um, wild, though, to think. And it's like, it's not like it's been that long. Sure, it's been, you know, it's been some time, decades involved, but really not that long. And it's wildly transformed the way that you can, you know, use things that you can store, how reliably you can do that. I remember having a... Um, no, that's not a good thing to hold up. I remember having a printed circuit board about that big. And it held, I think, 4K of RAM, of 2102 RAM chips. And I remember soldering all that. And I remember I had two of them. They went into a Mimic 8080 or Z80 system. It wasn't even on the same. It was a separate board for the RAM. Uh, okay. But, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and there's no external storage. The external storage is a paper tape. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Boy, how times fly. Well, are you excited for these uh, these new hard drive improvements? I, I am, but for redundancy, I'm going to need four of them. Right. What that level? Gives me in, in, that gives me like 80 terabytes of data yeah. on two drives. I want to know what the power consumption is going to be and what the reliability is going to be like. This, I am excited that we can get more disk space out of the same form factor. Right. Would you? Uh, would that? Would any of these changes uh, lead to you no longer using tapes in the future? No. Yeah. I'll probably still use tape. That's. What I can't. I, I can't see me stopping. <laughs> 
tape anytime soon. It's just instinctive at this point. You get up in the morning, you go over and check the tapes. It, it just happens by by nature. It used to. It doesn't anymore. <laughs> Only once a month. Only once a month. Well, that's reasonable. Well, awesome. All right. Uh, anything else you want to say about uh, Hammer, Mammer, and the future of hard drive technology? Uh, someone posted, someone's, you know, some other drive manufacturer is going to say, hey, wait, we've got even bigger drives coming. So right. we'll have to wait and I'm see. I'm sure so there'll be more developments here. I am looking forward to it. Competition is good. Mm-hmm. And if anyone in the audience has any opinions or has some recently acquired some large drives of their own and have experience reports, I would certainly be interested in, in hearing about it. And if you were just confused about this future market of different drive technologies and would like a helping hand in your next storage purchase, I can think of only one company that fits the bill. That is our friends over at iX Systems. Head on over to iXSystems.com slash TechSnap. There, you will find the definitive guide to buying hardware for open source software and proprietary software and really for any anything you need to do just at all. iX Systems has a team of incredible sales engineers and just a whole staff of competent, experienced, knowledgeable people who are excited and standing by to help you make whatever your next project, business, or just goal a complete success. They are experts in this field. They've built incredible systems. Go to their homepage, go to their social media, take a look. I mean, the things you'll see, you'll really see that they have partners, you know, people like Splunk, LinkedIn, various government agencies universities they help nasa and berkeley do with research for you know storage for research projects adobe vmware they're used all over they're widely recognized part of that is some of the great work they do things open source work like freenas maybe you've heard about the awesome freenas project you can run it at home turn your own software or your own hardware into a nas or if you love freenas and you want to get just the the best freenas you can get Get it right from iX Systems. Go on over. You can get it on Amazon. You can buy it right from iX on their website or call them up. FreeNAS Mini is perfect for home, home office, anywhere you just need to make sure you have backups. You want a powerful single server or a couple servers uh, you know, that have easy, hot-swappable storage, that have great warranties. You know that iX, they've, they've been doing this so long. They're experts at this. The FreeNAS Mini, the form factor is great. They've really spent a lot of time in engineering and design, making this thing easy to use, easy to maintain, super simple. It's super redundant. FreeNAS runs from a USB drive, so and but the settings are stored on the array. So if, if that USB drive ever dies or you need to do updates, you can just switch it out with a new one or reflash it. It's, it's just it's so well thought out. Maybe you need something a little bigger. Go check out the TrueNAS. Just rack it up in your data center. You got some storage coming right online. Plays so super well with tons of different enterprise technologies. Or maybe you have some true storage needs and you want to check out the True Rack. Maybe you're, uh, you know, it's time to upgrade the SAN at your data center. Go look at the True Rack. Go talk to IX. They will have some super cost-effective solutions. And if you look at the work they do upstream with projects like OpenZFS, you can tell they really know their file system and their storage technology. So. As all these new types of drives come online, iX is going to be playing with them, burning them, using them, benchmarking them, throwing in systems, evaluating what the best, you know, what the best price is or what might actually work for your use case, not just what's hypey, flashy, or currently on the market, right? They'll understand like you have you have needs. You probably want to make sure you have some of the best processors. They've got a great partnership with the incredible Intel processors. So you know you're getting the best bang for your buck. You're getting the motherboards that make sense. They've got great relationships with a ton of partners. And don't forget, like Go check out their blog, too, because you'll always see iX over at a ton of different conferences having a lot of fun, and they have these server envy posts. So go check out Ohio Linux Fest 2017 Recap. It's a great conference, and iX was there, so go check that out. And go check out this for you server, the iX4260 from the Jupyter series. It's got a 60-bay drive capacity. It really will provide you, as they say, with more storage than you can imagine. And it's it's pretty to boot. So look at all those. Look super easy. Systems from iX come like burn-in, tested, ready to go. They've got white glove service. Your server will show up ready to be racked. You can ship it right to the data center, plugged in, operational. You know, a lot of people set them up, so it just pixie boots right up, gets imaged from however you've set that up in your data center. It's super simple. They've done this since since the internet existed, pretty much, and so they really are experts. Head on over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Go check out their blog. Go get some server envy and let them know you appreciate them sponsoring us here at the TechSnap program. And now it's time for the feedback. We uh, get feedback from you, our wonderful audience, from time to time. And this is the segment where we take time in the show to uh, 
hear that feedback. You can reach us over at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact, techsnap.reddit.com, or find us both on Twitter. Now it's time for your letters. What do we got today, Dan? Well, I have to admit that I've made these one up. These ones up. Uh, we didn't get any feedback, and I think I know why. Uh, it, it's only been three days, three business days since we last released. You know what? That's a really good point. Show. Yeah, so, you're right. Uh, Wes, what do you do in your day job? That's a good question. Um, I, you don't have to get specific. That, no, just, that's a good point. Uh, I feel like I, I have like way too many interests these days. But right now what I'm doing is uh, I work on an internal tool team as a software developer. We have a number of systems under our scope, but uh, a large part of it is we maintain like the configuration management. So we do a lot of work with the Chef server uh, at work as well as manage the some aspects of like our infrastructure as a service sort of internal platform, which is channels like VM provisioning, uh, DNS and IP changes. Let's see, uh, a bunch of other things, uh, you know, manage our internal enterprise GitHub, mostly maintain, build, help fix all the tools, uh, software deployment. There's multiple in-house systems that are being used to deploy, upgrade and run systems, uh, handle the tools that run our patching infrastructure, all that sort of stuff. So the company's kind of moving from what was a very traditional uh, dev and ops split to somewhat more of a shared DevOps, um, faster, agile kind of structure. Uh, so there's been a lot of changes around how we how we do things, trying to press for more automation. So I guess you could call me right now like an automation and tools developer. Okay. Maybe that answers what your sort, question. What sort of tools did you... Yeah, uh, I mean, so we we both basically, like, there's an in-house system that handles all of our, we have a bunch of KVM servers and several of our own data centers. Uh, so we have some in-house developed software that runs all the orchestration that gets that working, builds VMs, builds all the images that we use as base images that hook into, yeah. like, the LDAP infrastructure, hook into the deployment infrastructure, um, write all the tools and build pipelines to manage the, like, right. continuous integration of Chef and that sort of thing. Yeah. I, I was I was I was thinking of other types of tools, mm. more more like I was thinking of Poudrier, Salt, Ansible, stuff like that. But you mentioned Puppet, uh, Chef, not Puppet, but we, have to, we do Sorry. have Ansible. Ansible. They're the same is, thing, aren't they? Uh, they're very similar. They have a very similar model, um, although Chef is a little bit more uh, freeform in that it's it's a Ruby DSL, and so you can kind of escape into Ruby. Not that you should, uh, but you definitely can. Uh, so it's kind of it's pretty malleable as a system which is nice okay thank you for that Mm -hmm. question dtm now the next question comes from dvl happens to be me is that and you yes you mentioned this once wes what do you know about elliptic curves and why (laughs) well you know not a huge amount, but I just think that, uh, you know, cryptography is fascinating in general, and math is a lot of fun. Uh, and we hear a lot about elect- elliptic curve cryptography and other things. And I recently stumbled across a couple articles that I thought did a really good job uh, of explaining them. Uh, so, like, the first one is over here at Wesley Aptekar Castle's blog. And he's he, here he's got an article, Elliptic, elliptic Curve Cryptography for Beginners. Uh, and as he talks about it, well, he finds cryptography fascinating and had become interested in electric curve cryptography, ECC. Hold on. Hold on. ECC. Is that related to ECC RAM? I do not believe so. Okay. It is a very similar acronym. Yes. Um, however, it's not really easy to find an introduction that doesn't assume a lot of math. And I think that's true. Um, so this, these posts kind of have those. We can walk through them real quick. Uh, as we've maybe talked about here on the show, a fundamental building block of most cryptography is a one-way function. A one-way mm-hmm. function is a function that is easy to compute, but its inverse is hard to compute. So if you have, mm-hmm. you know, given f of x equals y, it's easy to calculate y given x, but it's hard to go the reverse way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's how a lot of our modern cryptography and cryptographic systems in general are, are, are working. So there's two ways that this is done commonly. One is factorization. So like a factorization of a really um, large number and with elliptic curve logarithms. So this post kind of goes on about how elliptic curves can be used to provide a one-way function. So the goal is to find a one-way function. Uh, But to do that, you first have to define what's an elliptic curve. So there's another good article over at imperialviolet.org 
uh, back from 2010, but it's still, I think it's really, it's really useful. Um, so here they've got a formula. An elliptic curve is a set of points on a plane, which satisfies an equation of the form y squared is equal to x cubed plus ax plus b. So that just has a specific form um, in terms of x. Here's an example. So they've got a couple examples pre-computed and graphed here. So here's one. y squared equals x cubed minus 3x plus 3. So you find all points x and y on the plane that satisfy that equation, plot those out on a plane, and you get a shape kind of like this. Uh, which for your audience members, go check out this link. It's super useful to see some of the graphs here. Uh, but basically, it's a curve on the plane uh, in two-dimensional space. So there's a lot of details here that we don't really need to get to go on to. But one thing about elliptic curves that's super useful, uh, it, it's not that just their, their set of points, but with some careful definitions, these points have a structure to them which is sufficient to form a group. Now, a group is a specific mathematical term. In mathematics, a group is a structure consisting of a set of elements, and they're equipped with an operation that combines any two elements to form a third element. Uh, and then that they additionally satisfy four conditions. But the most important here is that if you have two elements, you can apply an operation to them, you get a new element that is also in this, this group. Uh, so that's a very important property here. Uh, so we explain a little bit more here. Being a group requires four things. That you can add two elements to get a third element, which is also in the group. That's what we just talked about. Uh, that this is true for all elements, uh, and that you can kind of reorder things. So if you have A plus B plus C, uh, A plus B first, and then add C, that's the same as doing B plus C first, and then adding A. And then finally, that, there, uh, that there's a zero element, so that you, if, you have an, if you have an element and you have a zero element and you combine them, you just get back that first element. A plus zero equals zero. Uh, and finally, that for every element, there's a negative of that element. So if you have an element A and you have a negative another element, uh, negative A, that is equal to zero. The, those are the four axioms of a group. So those are the properties they must satisfy. So if you define addition correctly, the set of points on an elliptic curve has that structure. Uh, also, the addition rule for elliptic curves has a really nice graphical definition. So uh, this article kind of has some of those here. Uh, so we don't have to go specifically into it, but the addition rule says that to add two points, A and B, you draw a line from A to B, and then keep going until you intersect the curve. Then you reflect that over the x-axis, and that point is defined as A plus B. Now, there's some, like, hmm. there's some details in here, uh, you know, like, what if A and B are the same point? Uh, so there's a special rule for doubling a point. You take the tangent to the curve at that point, intersect it with the curve, and then reflect that. Uh, so the point is, you don't have to understand exactly, but you can define these operations where, uh, given two points, you can then produce another point, um, you know, programmatically, algorithmically, that's still on this elliptic curve. Uh, the yeah, zero I was element... looking at... Oh, go on. I, I was looking at the extreme corners of a curve where, say, it, where the slope is zero, and I was wondering about that. But... Yeah. Uh, so you also need a zero element. Uh, as they say, the zero element is a bit of a hack. That's a software way to define it. Uh, in the in the math world, it's just, you know, there's a lot of times you have in an unintuitive definitions, but that actually just makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. So this is kind of an example of that. Um, we, we won't go through that here, but basically you can define a zero element, um, and it's called the point at infinity for, for elliptic curves. Um, and it's a magic element, uh, not really, but which is infinitely far away. You can think of it that way, um, which means that a vertical line will end up hitting it. It also means that it's directly above every point. So when you add the zero element to a point, you get its reflection, which you then reflect back to the original point. So that's using the zero element, you can then define uh, that last axiom we talked about where you have a negative of an element. Um, anyway, the real important point here, as we talked about before, is that we have a group. You have a, you have a given elliptic curve that you've drawn, and then you have a group, those set of points as a group. So that applying an operation, your addition, will give you another element on the group. But how does, what does that actually matter, Right. Um, what's the point of that? Well, given addition, uh, as you might remember from grade school, you can then define multiplication because it's just repeated addition, right? Like three times a number is just three, that number plus itself plus itself. Uh, so given a curve and a point on that curve, which we'll call the base point and write G capital G, you can calculate some multiple of that point. But given the resulting point, you can't feasibly work backwards to find out what that multiple was. So that's part of the, that's part of the key here. Um, and let's see, it's actually called... 
Here we go. Okay, so the multiplication points on an electric curve. So you can take a, a point on a curve, multiply it by a scalar, find a new point on that curve. But going the opposite way is known as the elliptic curve discrete logarithm problem. And that is hard to do. And so there we found our one-way function. And they illustrate this a little bit over here. So um, to see how it might actually be useful, because it's hard to go the reverse way, if you have Alice and Bob, uh, they're standing in a room with lots of people, and they'd like to have a private conversation about some really juicy gossip that they've both stumbled upon. But there's not enough room to talk privately, right? So thankfully, Alice and Bob both know a standard elliptic curve, right, which is just a set of points or just like, a, you know, a line drawn on a, on a plane that satisfies the elliptic curve equation we saw before. And they know a base point on that curve. So just any point mm-hmm. as the base point on that curve. Um, mm-hmm. Each think up a random number and they multiply the base point by that number. So remember that they're multiplying this here. And so that was going to give them another point on this elliptic curve. We'll call Alice's number A and Bob's B. And these are both numbers they picked randomly. Each tell the other, and therefore everyone else, uh, their number times this base point, right? So they have A times, Alice has A times G, and Bob has B times G, and they share those publicly. So Alice knows A, because that's her, her secret random number, and she knows BG, which is the multiple that Bob did. And same for the reverse, right? So Bob knows B, and he know, which is his private secret number, and then he knows AG, which is the multiplication that Alice did. Um, um, so, th- so then they have these. Uh, but what, what you can then do is hmm. Bob has AG, Alice has BG, but they each have the corresponding other number. So they then both have... A, B, G. Or really, really, one of them has A, B, G, and the other one has B, A, G. So by doing one more multiplication, they get the number, the multiplication from the other party, and they multiply it by their their secret number. And because of the rules of a group, those numbers are the same. And so in this way, they have now manufactured a shared private key that because it's hard to go the opposite way in that multiplication, the other parties in the room can't calculate and can't therefore find that same secret. And that's the elliptic so what, curve Diffie-Hellman key agreement. So, so what got shared there publicly was A, G, and B, G, not A and G and B and G, but the but the multi, the result of the multiplication of A times G and B times G. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's uh, that's kind of the basis. Um, you don't need a ton of math. Uh, it might be some some algebra that you haven't actually seen, but it's pretty easy to, to understand. There's really not that many axioms to it. There's a lot of introductions. So if you're curious at all about this, this has been a whirlwind introduction. There's a lot of more complicated math, a lot of finer points, a lot of, you know, just details as with any subject. Uh, but go check out those two links and maybe it's wet your palate. But it's quick to compute, I take it. Yeah, um, or at least you can come up with schemes. Uh, this um, Imperial Violet article uh, actually has a, se- a section here about implementing it in software, uh, and there's you can find some other um, various papers and details about you know how you how you get these things to work in practice and make it uh, reasonable to compute. Okay, that sounds cool. Yeah. I like this. Yeah, it's a lot of fun, uh, and uh, it's some fun math and some fun some fun curves to draw as well. Awesome. Well, I guess that does it for today's feedback. If uh, there's anything you want us to talk about, or you have uh, gripes, compliments, or really just opinions in general, send them on over to us, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash techsnap, techsnap.reddit.com, or find us both on Twitter. Thank you very much for your feedback, and uh, make sure to send some for next time. And with that, it's time for the final segment of today's show. That's right. It's the roundup. We're doing the roundup right today, so it's uh, it's going to be quick, and it's not going to be super long. That's because it's a roundup. So let's jump right in. First up, we head on over to Twitter. Yeah, this is nasty. So hackers were breaching major banks, and what they would do is they mo- they would modify the overdraft limits of credit cards one by one. And within minutes of making that change to that credit card, the card would be used in another country to withdraw money from an ATM. And once you get money out of the ATM, it's gone. It's gone. So in total, at least 40 million, that's with an M, is suspected to have been stolen. Um, 
the same minute the first card OD limit was modified, the physical card was used in another country to perform the withdrawal. So all I can think of is that someone was standing in front of the ATM, was in communication with someone or could do that from in front of the ATM and then use it. Boy. Modifying a substantial number of cards required approximately four to six hours. And at the same time, all of those cards were used abroad. The sophisticated coordination is a strong indicator of organized crime activities. Now, do you remember the last time we were talking about small groups of people um, doing nasty things like this? They may not know each other. It may not actually be organized crime in the traditional sense of what we think of, say, the mafia or something like that. Right, with like a top-down structure. Yeah. This may just be a small group of people involved. That's a good point. And by small, small is relative. (laughs) Small is relative, right. But it may not be the same kind of um, organization that we've come to expect. It's not the traditional organized crime that that we're familiar with. Interesting. Well, uh, yikes, 40 million is a lot, and that's, that's no good. It is. Okay, so uh, moving right along, here's we're back over on Twitter. Uh, hijack a Subaru, Subaru's key fob with a $10 RTL SDR. A rolling code is used, which is predictable. Yeah. Now, I've heard about this before. Uh, I've, I've heard, like, warnings on, on, on Facebook. If you see some people standing around, don't use your key fob. But... It's highly unlikely that someone's going to do this. Um, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, he goes into details of all the parts you need to buy, but I'm sure that the actual. I don't think he's given away the code. Yeah. Okay. That's good, at least. But uh, boy, especially you... since I drive a Subaru. Yeah, especially that. Yeah, exactly. It does make you wonder, though, right? Like the more the more things we get that are convenient, the more security implications there may be if these things aren't looked after carefully. Mm-hmm. He, I, I think he lists the required hardware, and he does have all the software, so I think it would work. Mm-hmm. Don't actually steal all the things he says. <laughs> yeah, that's is on you if you steal it. It's not his fault, all right? Well, maybe you'll have to take so, some... Uh, see, if you ever get locked out of your Subaru, maybe you can... Yeah. Well, it affects a number of items. 2006 Subaru Baja, 2005-2010 Forester, 2004-2011 Impreza, 2005-2010 Legacy, and 2005-2000... Ten outback. Okay, yeah, that's a wow. That's a good number. So if you have any of those, uh, watch out, or at least be aware. Yes. Okay. Well, one more roundup item today. Crypto anchors, exfiltration resistant infrastructure. Yes. Now, what the guy is getting at is, say you steal data. And then you sit at home and you go through it at your leisure. What if we could make it so that data was useless without some hardware on the server that you stole it from? In other words, the decryption or whatever step you need to go through in order to make the data useful is from hardware that you cannot take. Right. So it is very interesting. And what happens under that scenario is the attackers stay in the system working on the data instead of stealing the data and then disappearing. Yeah. So I guess the idea is keeping them there and you're more likely to f- to find them or discourage the actual manipulation of the data or, or the decrypting of the data. Hmm. His conclusion is, by designing your applications in a way that ensures sensitive data flows are crypto-anchored to your data center, you are slowing attackers down, gathering better information on what data was exposed, and making attackers continuously risk detection by forcing them to operate on your turf. So... Yeah, I like that. This is a security lead at Docker, and he's from... uh, Square, formerly at uh, Square. 
and he's a PhD, so maybe he knows what he's maybe talking about. Maybe he knows about. what he's talking about. It's certainly good ideas to think about, right? Like as we as we see, you know, defense in depth, and um, yep. the more steps you can take, the more resilient, the more difficult you can make things. Especially when we see so many breaches where it's like, oh yeah, they just you know they downloaded the tar off off S three, and, uh, and then they can do whatever they want with it. And they here got at it least, yeah. you know, there are there are limitations that they can't just grab it all and run. They need to you know at least work with some of it there. Um, Hopefully that will make things easier to mitigate, easier to track, easier to uh, hunt down and stop. So hopefully mm. hopefully this sort of stuff continues and we see more of this discussion being had. Companies start adopting it because, you know, there's only going to be more and more personal information, secure information yes. that we want to keep and more cloud services that get entrusted with it. So they need to make sure that their architecture is designed from the ground up to handle it. Correct. I agree. Huh. And there's one last thing. Oh, another item that we added in at the last second. Dragonfly BSD 5.0. Yeah, that's right. It was released yesterday. Now, basically, it's the first bootable release of Hammer 2, Dragonfly's next generation file system. The details of all the commits between 4.8 and 5 branches are in the commit messages over here. But the big ticket items are Hammer 2, IPFW updates, improved graphics support, and EFI setup, and now can support over 900,000 processes on a single machine. Wow. 900,000 is an awful lot of processes. Yeah, that is definitely true. Man, they do some, they're doing some awesome work there. I know like the IPFW rewrite people are really excited for. It sounds like that's added a lot of performance. Um, it's really great to see some of the graphics work. Like they've been really doing a great job of keeping up with the, with the Linux stack. So the I915 driver has been brought up to match what's in the Linux kernel 4.7.10. So Intel GPUs are supported up to the KB Lake generation. That's pretty modern. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... The reason they went with the 900,000 is because they only had a six-digit pin. We might as well make it work to a million. So we actually did get 900,000 processes running. And the load average was like 890,000. Wow. Huh. That's crazy. But that's, that's impressive. Ridiculous. That's ridiculous. You uh, ever use Dragonfly? I have not. Yeah. I have T-shirts with Dragonfly on it. Well, maybe this is the release for you to try. Maybe I should. Excellent. Yeah. Perfect. Well, and if anyone else out there is excited for it or has tried it or has uh, thoughts, reflections on Hammer 2, I know I've certainly followed some of the development of Hammer 2 for a while and been interested in it. So now that it's out in a more easy to use release and conti- you know things keep improving, go check it out. Let us know what you think. I'm, sh- I'm sure it's certainly curious. They're doing a lot of very interesting things. Yeah, definitely. And uh, performance-oriented, and it just seems like it's really shaping up as a nice modern operating system. Awesome. Well, that's a great uh, that's a great last roundup item. We get to leave the show on a positive note. That's it for the TechSnap program today. This has been episode 341. Thank you very much for joining us. If you want to see more, jupiterbroadcasting.com there's the archives of this show the past generation and a whole bunch of other great shows for you to check out you can join us here live there there's the calendar there's the live stream page it's an irc and a discord and all kinds of way you can go to techsnap.reddit.com and you can find us both on twitter i'm at Wes Payne. he is at techsnap underscore dan that's it for the show uh come back next week keep watching techsnap we love that you're our audience Thank you for joining us. See you, Dan.